Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I really appreciate you being here. It gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest today, Annie Michon, the author, along with David Shaler, of Spies, Lies, and Whistleblowers. She is a former MI5 representative from Britain. We're here to talk about a number of subjects that are very serious, that need reflection, and are impacting us today that have to do with secrecy, security, surveillance, and what it means to be human, to gather in groups, to be in community, just navigating the day-to-day world in what is appearing like a slowly evolving police state where there's a constant wars on terror, wars on drugs, a whole terrorist culture that has people afraid and anxious and not feeling quite right. Since 9-11, we've had tremendous changes in our lives, both here in the United States and around the world. I've invited Annie Michon, a former MI5 agent and now whistleblower who has paid dearly for speaking truth to power and is dedicated to educating the public about what we need to be paying attention to today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Annie Michon to its rainmaking time. Good afternoon. Good evening. Thank you very much for inviting me on. As a whistleblower, which is not really received well anymore, it's not protected anymore in the world. How is it, as a former MI5 agent, that you're still alive, talking about what you're talking about? I'm Seriously, how do you think you're still alive? Why are you still alive? Um, sheer bloody-mindedness and lots of red wine, I think. Always works. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, of course, what's happened in the U.S. over the last decade since 9-11 has meant that the Espionage Act is being used more and more and more against intelligence and military whistleblowers who are coming out and saying... This is not right. But actually, if you look at the old world, and particularly the UK, they have had these sort of laws in place for the last 100 years, virtually, um, where if you do blow the whistle on the intelligence agencies, you are always hung out to dry. You are always crushed. But I think um, they, I think actually why they don't tend to kill, why they tend to um, just try and trash people's reputations is because they don't want to create martyrs generally. And this is certainly something that um, when I was involved with whistleblowing with David Shaler, my former colleague in MI5 and partner, um, we certainly counted on the fact that they wouldn't go that far. They would shred someone's reputation in the media and they would destroy them that way, but they wouldn't do anything else. This was slightly sort of shifted, should we say, in perception when Dr. David Kelly was found dead in the woods after he blew the whistle on the fabrication of the case for war in Iraq way back in 2005, I think it was. So you can never tell what's going to happen. But usually they will use legal routes and crush someone's reputation if you are seen as a real threat to them. You were there for six years and then you left. But give us the timeline that you were at MI5. Um, I was recruited in 1990. I started working in 1991 in January and I left in 1996. So I was there for six years and I worked in three different sections, as did David and Shayla. Um, but I have to say when I was recruited... Um, it was a bit of an accident. I never intended to be a spy. I had no interest in that whole thing. I quite fancied being a diplomat and applied to the Foreign Office in the UK and then had this very mysterious letter through the post from the Ministry of Defence saying, we may have other jobs you'd find more interesting. And my very first response was sort of a very ladylike version of, oh, fuck, it's MI5. <laughs> I wasn't going to respond and call the telephone number they gave me, but my father encouraged me because he was a journalist and he wasn't into the spy stuff. So I sort of fell into it by accident. 
And I was very, very anti the whole thing at that point because MI5 had been around for 80 years. They had worked in the shadows under no legal accountability or political oversight for those 80 years. And they had pretty much done what they did. So they had a stinking reputation by the late 1980s. Because of this, they'd been put on a legal footing for the first time in 1989. And it was only because of that reassurance that they then had to obey the law, as they told me when they were recruiting me, that um, I finally felt encouraged enough to join. Were you scared at all when you joined? Seriously? I, I was scared when they approached me. I mean, you know, that first letter was, oh, my God, what do they want with me? You know, because, as I said, they had such a bad reputation. The recruitment process goes on for so long, though. Over, I mean, in my case, it was 10 months. And I was honest and upfront about all my views about ethics, civil liberties, everything, which hadn't actually changed to this day. So I was always surprised when I kept getting through to the next stage. And they were very reassuring and saying, you know, we're not like we are portrayed in the media. We do have to obey the law. We want a new generation of officers to work against terrorism. And you, you seem to fit the bill. So, you know, the job seemed right. Did you ever ask them, what is it you're looking for? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I didn't at the time, but in my last year in MI5, I was trained up to be a recruiter of new officers because they were going on a big recruitment drive openly for the first time in their history. So I could see what they were after. And it was very much for the officers, at least, who have to run the operations, looking at people with um, good judgment, integrity, um, intercommunication skills, the ability to influence people, um, good written skills as well. I mean, those sort of things. I think you would be a great diplomat, actually. I think it still holds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what? The bastards wouldn't have me. <laughs> Not now. <laughs> yeah, you've touched on... Probably uh, once you've blown the whistle, you sort of had trailer reputation, so no other organization's ever going to employ you. It becomes very difficult. You're a very good speaker. I've heard many of your speeches and presentations, and your speaking skills in general are stellar. How does a whistleblower stay alive financially? Uh, with great difficulty. I mean, for the first few years, there is no way we would have been able to survive without um, the help of friends and family. Uh, you become unemployable. You're radioactive to other employers. I mean, the other thing that we could do was by, or David certainly began to write articles, and we earned a very, you know, he earned a very meager living that way. But um, it was really difficult, really touch and go. Don't you think that there should be trust funds around the world that take care of whistleblowers? Essentially, through calling, you give up life with peace, life with any modicum of security. The cost is enormous, don't you think? Um, no, I totally agree. And, you know, I, I've, I've written about this before, that when you, when you choose to step outside and blow the whistle, you're not just giving up your future career and becoming unemployable. You're potentially giving up and certainly coming from the inside of intelligence, you are certainly giving up your entire social life. All your friends won't be allowed to talk to you in the future. Um, you lose the, the means of earning a decent salary, so you'll probably have problems paying the mortgage or rent on your flat or wherever you're living. Um, and potentially you're risking prison, getting a criminal record too. So it's a huge, huge step. And I think in the 1980s and 1990s, it was less, well-known. I think the concept of whistleblowing was less well-known. Occasionally you get one big whistleblower coming out. But in the last decade, there have been so many problems and so many issues that so many people have been coming out that the governments are pushing back harder and harder to crack the nuts. You know, the, the old um, image of using a sledgehammer to crack the walnut. Um, and they're doing it more and more heavily. So yes, I think there is an awareness of the 
issues around being a whistleblower now. And that's precisely why we've seen organisations like WikiLeaks as well evolve. And it also means that there are now, across many continents, organisations that support the work of whistleblowers. I mean, I know that uh, Sibel Edmonds, a very famous CIA whistleblower in uh, the last decade, has set up a whistleblower association in the, in the US. And also there are whistleblower associations being established in many European countries now, particularly the UK, there's a new one. And it's not just about our financial worries, it's about the psychological support, um, how to survive the media onslaught, because the government is very good at spinning against the whistleblower and shredding the reputations. And you're up against very strong vested interests if you blow the whistle. So it's all these different things. You know, how do you survive the process, not just financially, but personally and with your own integrity and with your own sanity very often? Do you meditate? Um, no, but I, I do enjoy yoga. <laughs> Big silence. <laughs> I would imagine it would be very, very challenging to be still when you're carrying knowledge, experience, and expertise like you are and have. In this navigation of the world, I'm sure it's very challenging to be still. Is it? It can be. I mean, certainly um, I've found that I have gotten into a situation where I always feel I need to be prepared in case something happens, which could be in the old days the knock on the door from the police or my partner being arrested and snatched off the streets and suddenly having to deal with all sorts of stuff, or moving very regularly from home to home. Or it could just be that, you know, I'm sitting at home thinking I'm going to have a, quite a, a lazy day, read a few articles, perhaps write something, and then suddenly I get a few requests for an interview, you know, to go and do a TV interview or something. So you can never 100% switch off. It is very difficult, which is why, indeed, I do make time for things like yoga and Pilates, because it gives me time just to you know, focus on, on myself and what I'm doing. It's a good start to the day. Is there really, in your experience, any protections anywhere in the world for whistleblowers? Is Iceland any type of protected place, do you think? It's very difficult. Iceland is certainly going through some interesting times, and it's not much reported in the Western media, as far as I've seen. But after the uh, credit crunch in 2008, they were really shafted by a very corrupt cabal of bankers and politicians. So, suddenly have a situation where a whole country is being threatened by the international banking setup, um, basically saying you are in debt because of what five or six politicians and bankers did, and you will uh, mortgage your entire future to pay back that debt. So the Icelanders said, oh, no, we're not doing it. It wasn't our decision. We, you know, this was a corruption issue. So they've told the banks and the Western politicians and the IMF and the World Bank and all the rest of it to, to piss off. And that's great. So they're now going through a whole rethink about what it means to be a democracy and rewriting a constitution and re-electing a government that is reflective of their, their needs and wishes as people. And a lot of the issues they're focusing on do exactly reflect this. So things like whistleblowing, things like corruption, things like internet openness and everything and security. So it's a very interesting country to watch. And unfortunately, many people don't have the opportunity to because it's not covered by the Western media. How do you feel when you travel on planes? <laughs> it depends where I'm going. During the height of the whistleblowing years, when I travelled, I was stopped a lot and questioned a lot. Less so now, which is quite reassuring. Um, but yeah, there are still areas of the world I would have a difficulty travelling to or I wouldn't have a wish to go to. Do you miss England? Well, I go back quite regularly. That's not an issue. Um, I had problems during the whistleblowing years, which was 15 to 12 years ago. Um, but no, I mean, I, I go back very regularly. I'm going back this week. So, 
Do people ever say to you, if you were really an MI5 and you talk the way you talk, you would be stopped? And when you got to England and the fact that you're not stopped, because how do you prove you were with MI5? You know what I'm saying? The reason I say that is not to be disrespectful, but that there are people out there that think like this. At the time, David and I were hunted across Europe and uh, arrested and imprisoned and all that sort of thing. They don't tend to do that to people who are fantasists. (laughs) I hear you. Talk a little bit about cognitive dissonance, because I've heard some of your talks where it seems to be a key into why certain things are perceived and happen. What is your take on cognitive dissonance and why it's important to know about it? Um, I think a lot of people feel very comfortable assuming that they have a job and they can afford a mortgage and they can raise a family and things will stay as they always have stayed. And one of the issues I find very fascinating is actually the fight that certainly Europe went through and then America over the last 500 years to establish certain basic rights. And I think from my perspective, that fight reached its apotheosis in 1948 with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was put in place precisely to protect everybody from being predated on, being tortured, being extrajudicially murdered, whatever. Everyone should have equality. And we're getting to a situation now where we have such a a complacent and bloated ease of life in the West that we don't think it can ever shift. But it can. I mean, we saw this with the Second World War. Things can go very badly wrong very quickly and slide into police states. And too many people are very comfortable and they don't want to see that that is a possibility now. And I think that is probably cognitive dissonance in my perspective is that they might know intellectually that certain things are going on, but it's not affecting them yet. They're not, it's not affecting them or their family yet. So they don't want to think about them too much. And if people want to talk to them about it, they will say, no, no, it's not affecting me. So they ignore it. And I think this is a real problem at the moment, the way that a number of Western countries are going with a slide towards the police state. I think you're right about that, that until something is at somebody's house, their door, in their life, everybody's operating in their bubble. And what's not occurring in their bubble or immediately interfacing with that bubble and intruding upon it obviously doesn't exist. The surveillance apparatus that is expanding, and I was looking this morning, I read Ray Kurzweil's newsletter called Kurzweil AI Accelerating Intelligence. (laughs) Uh, He's a brilliant inventor, really big. And he has the attention of many of the world's leaders and heads of industry. And in Kurzweil Accelerating Intelligence News this morning, I get an article called, What is DARPA's Plan X? Most people don't know what DARPA is. It's quite serious. DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency which was established in 1958 to prevent strategic surprise from negatively impacting U.S. national security and create strategic surprise for U.S. adversaries by maintaining the technological superiority of the U.S. military. This is my statement. DARPA is involved in the most advanced technology research and military defense and offense in the world. This is probably one of the most advanced agencies. So the fact that DARPA now has a project called Plan X that is going to create revolutionary technologies for understanding, planning, and managing DOD cyber missions in real-time, large-scale, and dynamic network environments is very serious. 
I was speaking with someone that I have tremendous respect for who was formerly in military intelligence. And what he said to me about what his contacts deep within the Navy shared with him was so disturbing. The technology is so advanced in terms of artificial intelligence that the Navy and other agencies have the ability, let's say we're on Skype, okay? They can get into Skype and actually control what we see. Once they have your image and your voice, they can actually take over from there. And we could have a totally different (laughs) interview than the one you think you had. And this guy told me it is so advanced that the average person would fall to the floor denying that it's even possible. That's how advanced their ability is. That's just in artificial intelligence. We're not even talking the drones in the sky, weaponized satellites. We're not even talking about just phone tapping. What do you think about that? Well, I I think remember that uh, Colin Powell, the Secretary of Defense in the U.S., was shown this program years ago where they made it look like he was saying something on video, um, but he wasn't. They were just sort of getting, you know, getting other recordings and using his voice. So, I mean, I have no doubt that military technology is going to be more advanced than anything we already know about. Uh, we saw this in the 1980s with the Bluebird spy plane, the stealth bomber. And um, nobody knew about it for a long time. It was speculated about, and it was only years later it came out. But no, in terms of artificial technology, artificial intelligence, the thing that fascinates me is the way that humans are so arrogant that they assume that any intelligence has to, has to follow the path that their minds use. And I think computers, sure, are going to get very fast and, uh, you know, look at quantum computing or anything. It might be a a slightly different form of intelligence to what we know. But what worries me is they're now talking about artificial intelligence and drones, where you can have a drone that would be weaponized, that can then independently decide to liquidate a target, as they say, as in take take out a wedding party in a village in Pakistan or someplace. And the ethical debate around that is... What level of control do we give to these drones, these artificial intelligences? And then, of course, the, the meta debate beyond that is who's going to program in the ethical framework? Is it going to be the Pentagon? Because that's bloody scary. Exactly. I mean, this is why I'm wondering now in your current life as a public speaker and educator, which is how I view you now. Do you view yourself that way? More so, yeah. I always describe myself as a writer and um, speaker, I suppose. Yeah. Right. And also, of course, director of LEAP. (laughs) Yes, and we'll talk about LEAP in just a moment. But do you think it's too far gone now, Annie, that humanity is being defiled on every level? The guy told me every email goes through a central station. There's not one email unless you encrypt your emails. Everything is read. Everything is surveilled. All phone conversations. There was a guy who did a deal with the Department of Defense. They are now installing lighting in America that has audio and video technology in it miniaturized and looking at a repurposing of the lighting like when you're walking down the street, just on the street. Who would do that? Yeah, I see it as a race. I've seen it for many years as a race between the um, grabbing of power, the grabbing of technology and the grabbing of legal power to enforce that technology from the global elites, you know, whatever you want to call them, there's a political elite, there's certainly a corporatist elite that finances that political elite. Um, So there's a race between what they're grabbing as a power grab and 
our pushback as citizens. We have a situation now where there are alternatives to the commercial big corporatist internet providers and services. We can go down the path of hacktivists and geeks looking at things like open source that protects our rights and our freedoms. And I think um, the best exposition I've heard of this was a talk done by Professor Aben Moglen um, at a talk in Berlin uh, last Christmas, uh, no, sorry, last May, I think, or March. Um, it, was a, it was an event called Ray Publica. And I would advocate that anyone watches that because he's not talking just geek. He's talking about basic freedom of thought, basic freedom of the internet, communications, and the media. And it is a race. It's very, you know, I think it's getting very, very tight. But I think also I'd like to draw back and say, well, yes, we're talking about this, and we are still just about free to talk about this, even though we have communications problems. But in the, most of the rest of the world, either people don't have access to this degree of communication, or if they do and they use it, they might get struck by a, a missile from a drone. So, you know, we're quite, we're in quite a luxurious position in the West that we can still debate these sort of issues and set the tone for this. But um, I suppose the, the final point I want to make on this is that if we're talking about technology that surveys us, yes, sure, I've written about this extensively and been tracking this extensively because the UK started off as the testing ground, the seeding ground for closed-circuit uh, TV, CCTV, where you have cameras on every street filming you wherever you go. That's been going on for about 15 years, and it's big business in the UK, again, corporate business. And it's got worse because then you have situations in certain towns in the UK where the CCTV cameras are watched live by police and they can talk at you. So if you drop a piece of rubbish, litter on the, on the street or something, they will bark at you and say, pick up that litter. <laughs> and now we're getting a situation where, <laughs> I know, but now we're getting a situation where the police and other intelligence agencies are now ordering spy drones to fly over protests and identify people because they're now putting in facial recognition software as well. And not only that, it came, through, it came out through WikiLeaks that they're pulling together all these systems through something called Trapwire, which is a sort of a big brother surveillance system where they, they gather all this disparate intelligence, use facial recognition, and then identify you on a protest or dropping litter or whatever. But then as well, if you happen to be walking in a suspicious way or looking like might be able to plant a bomb or whatever, it will tell the police locally that there's a suspicious potential terrorist on the street and then the police deal with you. And of course, we all know what that means in this day and age, you know, post-occupy and, um, you know, domestic extremists and things like that. So it can get quite rough. So already they're getting into a position where they can survey the entire um, populations in countries and where they are predicting the behavior of how you walk down the street and what it might mean to the national security of your country. So it is very Orwellian already. It's just most people are not being affected by it. It tends to be smaller communities like the Muslim community in the US or the UK, or as it was in the 1980s, the Irish community or whatever. But we should never forget that it's very easy, easy to let go of your civil liberties and then everyone gets affected by this sort of surveillance state. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. 
The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. Talk a little bit about the G branch. What is the G branch? (laughs) Um, That's just terminology within MI5. So you work in different sections and they use letters. It's all very James Bond. So G branch was international terrorism. And you spent how many years in that? I was just there for a year and a half. That was my final posting before David Shaler and I resigned to blow the whistle. Um, so I was looking at international terrorism and producing briefings and things like that for um, government ministers. And he was running the Libyan section in MI5 at the time. Were you more administrative to that? Were you producing intelligence at a desk or were you interviewing people? Give us a little feel for your day to day. Um, well, if you're recruited as an intelligence officer, you are recruited to do pretty much anything across the intelligence spectrum. So some jobs meant that you could be out there running agents, as they're called. Um, there's a, a confusion between the American and UK terminology that if you work for one of the agencies in the UK, you are an officer, and then you run agents into organizations. So they're sort of contractors. Um, or you could be coordinating operations where you have to decide who's a threat and what to deploy against that threat, like bugging their telephones or following them around, and then analyzing the information coming out and deciding what to do against them. So there's a whole range of different things that you do as an officer. Um, So my first two postings were more investigative and debriefing agents and deciding what, um, what resources to deploy. And then my third posting was coordinating all the sort of intelligence that was coming in and shoving it up to government. What was your sensory impression when you first arrived on the scene at MI5? I have a feeling you had a sense of something and you probably ignored it. Is that correct? <laughs> Very much so, because when I was recruited, they said they wanted a new generation of um, officers to investigate terrorist targets, because we're talking about the end of the Cold War now. You know, subversion and espionage was no longer something to be investigated. They wanted people who could work against organizations like the IRA or Middle Eastern terrorism. So it was a shock when my first posting was indeed to a little counter-subversion section looking at political activists. Now, I have to say that we did shut that that area down pretty much by the mid-1990s, but it was very slow doing that even then. I mean, you know, the Cold War ended in 1989. So that was a bit of a shock, and yes, that jolted me. Um but I, and I was going to. I was thinking about leaving in 1993, about 18 uh, two years after I joined. But then I'd sort of met and 
fallen in love with David Taylor and we sort of stayed because that was just our life by that point. Is your dad still alive? Oh, very much so, yes. What did he think when you were in MI5? Was he concerned about you? I think he was curious, um, but we couldn't discuss the work. Um, I think there was a certain sense of pride that I might be trying to do a job that would make a difference. Um, I think he was very shocked when we blew the whistle because we couldn't warn any of our families that we were going to do it because we were paranoid about our phones being bugged. Um, But I think once he realized why we were doing it and why it was so important to us that he accepted and supported. He's been amazingly supportive over the years. Because, you know, parents, no matter how old their children are, are always worried about their children. Of course. And he and my mother were both very concerned that we might get you know, murdered or something in the early years, just, you know, have a car accident or whatever. Yes, certainly. Everyone was very worried. Talk a little bit about Section 44, the Terrorism Act, and the Eavesdropping Act in the U.K., please. Oh, <laughs> Section 44, I think, has now been repealed um, because this was basically the stop and search um, on no suspicion of having committed a crime because you might potentially be a terrorist. Um, and this targeted a lot of activists and things like that. And they could be arrested for then not co- um, not actually working with the police and not handing over their identities. They could go to prison just for that. So that was a bit of a bad one. They renamed it, I think it's Section 80 or some act now, which does the same thing, but, you know, it doesn't sound quite so bad. <laughs> um, but no, there's a whole battery of laws in the UK which protect the police and protect intelligence agencies and give them powers over the population. And it's quite interesting that the Americans have gone so far down that path of shredding the Constitution with the Patriot Act in the same way. But um, the one of particular interest is called the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, RIPA. And this came in in 2000, and it was supposed to bring the interception of communications into the 21st century for the spies. So, for example, rather than just being able to bug your telephone, they could actually read your emails too if they got a warrant from the political masters. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work quite that way. So, Ripper has now been used and abused, even down to the level of local town municipality um, governments, to spy on their citizens for the most ludicrous reasons, like, you know, did their dog do a mess on the sidewalk or are they sending their children to the right school in the right catchment area or something? I mean, it's just been, it's reductio ad absurdum. They've, they've just turned it into a, a charter for Big Brother for spying. In the United States last year on 12-31-2011, the Obama administration put forth the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which gives the government the right to charge anybody of treason, of a crime, without trial. And they can actually snatch them, take them to another country, put them in prison, and not have to tell them why. Now, it's very interesting because nowhere in the U.S. debates has one person been allowed to say to the current administration, and this is not a partisan comment, okay, Why did you put forth that type of draconian, horrible fascist law? Not one person is allowed to ask this president that question. That's how controlled our debates are. Yeah, it's disgusting. And also interesting was that in the run-up to Obama signing it at the end of last year, he kept saying publicly he did not agree with this position. He did not want to sign it, and then he still signed it. But I have to point out that 
This is a law, this type of law has been applied across the planet to every other nationality since 9-11, where so-called terrorist suspects can be extraordinarily rendered to black prisons abroad, where they can be uh, murdered, and there will be no combat. And I suppose the NDA, NDAA is just applying it to U.S. citizens within the U.S. But the whole of the rest of the world has been traumatized by, by this idea that certain communities of people can be snatched or murdered at will by the U.S. since 9-11. So it's just formalizing it. And I think it's disgusting that it's been applied. I think it's disgusting that these sort of extrajudicial kidnappings have been used by the U.S. and the U.K. and other countries around the planet for the last decade. It's the definition of fascism. It is. You know, this is what the Gestapo did in the run-up to the Second World War. Once Hitler got a certain degree of power in 1933, he and his bully boys were out there rounding up dissidents, trade unionists, Jews, anyone they didn't like the look of, and putting them in prisons. It didn't just start when World War II started. This went on for a decade. And they would torture them and they would murder them extrajudicially. And that's what we're talking about. Always when I'm reading and I'm thinking about a subject and I'm spending time on it, I always try to look at what's my bias? What's my conditioning about this? What's my issues? Mm. What are my issues with this? Why don't I want to talk about it? Why is this so sensitive? And what I realized is that NDAA, just to talk about it, is scary. It's scary. This really was pushed through. And tragically, it was pushed through when everybody was celebrating the New Year for New Year's Eve here. It's very clever government spin, very clever timing. That's what they do. Interestingly, there was a story that broke today about a U.S. citizen called Wayne Hicks, who was flying from the U.S. via Hawaii to Japan to meet up with his new wife. Um, she is a lieutenant, apparently, in the uh, U.S. Navy. And he was stopped, he flew out of the U.S., no problems. He was stopped in Hawaii and told he couldn't continue his journey because he was on the NDAA. Uh, he'd been flagged up to the NDA, under the NDAA and that he was on the no-fly list. And apparently he is on the no-fly list because he's been speaking out about issues like the NDAA and civil liberties. This is a guy who's cleared to certain security levels. You know, he's got a, a transportation workers' identification credential security card thing so that he can travel easily, but they stopped him because he's suddenly been put on the list. What this does is muzzle Americans. It's going to muzzle Americans. And the message is, you better shut up. Isn't that the message? Shut up. Very much so. And again, this goes back to the model of Nazi Germany before the Second World War, where if you were a distant, if you were outspoken, if you said, hang on, I don't agree with the way this country's going. In a democratic country, I want to have, you know, have this discussed. You could be snatched out of your home at 6 a.m. and taken to a secret torture cell and murdered. That's precisely what we are talking about, a slide towards fascism. I think it's always worth remembering that um, Mussolini, the Second World War leader in Italy, you know, fascist leader, defined fascism as the merger of the corporate and the state. Now, a lot of fuss is always made about trying to shrink the state. The state is bad. It's, you know, we don't want to go down the path of the communists. But what we're seeing is a corporate takeover of the state, not only in the US, but also the UK, where funders can put so much money into the campaigns of political candidates that they can actually effectively rig the elections through advertising, through the message they keep bombarding our minds with. There's a book called No Debate by George Farah. 
he did the research on this and found out that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party both get together and agree on the questions that are allowed to be asked to the candidates. They sign like a 37-page contract with the sponsors. This is the Presidential Debate Commission. And I've always wondered, why is not one person allowed to ask anything that's really worth anything? Because the devil's always in the details, right? And yet we're all watching these debates like these are real debates. These are not real debates. There was a gentleman named Stephen Spoonamore. I don't know if you've heard of him in the U.S., but he used to put big ATM systems together and work on banks, electronics, and he can hack into anything, but he's a professional. He actually showed and demonstrated how once you make the elections electronic, there is no way to protect the vote anybody makes from an electronic machine. I think he was on something called the Velvet Revolution or whatever. They have like videos online. He painstakingly goes through the whole process of once you have the intervention of electronic voting, you have the hijacking of whatever we consider to be democratic. It's over. Even foreign governments can alter what's in an electronic voting machine, that you cannot protect a vote and you cannot protect anything once you institute that. He's been at it 10 years and I asked him to come on the show and he said to me, I'm sorry, we lost. We lost. Sometimes you have to just say enough is enough. The American people are not interested. They do not want to take this seriously. I've done what I can. I spent years on this. I'm not doing any more interviews. I have to go on to something else because I can't take it anymore. Isn't that sad? It is incredibly sad and also incredibly natural. It's something I've seen time and time again, that the government can out out time us. You know, there might be an issue that gets people fired up. It might gain traction. It might go on for up to a decade. But the governments are there immutable. Not just the, the politicians, not really them, but the, the bureaucracy behind them who make their careers out of this for 40 years. They know that they can time out the most activist groups. So to be effective, you have to hit fast and you have to hit smart. And I've seen this in action. I mean, I do know the issue of voting computers. I mean, I know um, one of my friends made a wonderful film a few years ago called Hacking Democracy, which um, focuses on, in part, on Cynthia McKinney, Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney from Atlanta, looking at precisely that, how you flip voting computers, how you can manipulate them. And I have other friends in, in Europe who have won very good, very sharp um, campaigns to ban voting computers because they are utterly undemocratic. They are utterly hackable and flippable. And they are—they just completely erode the notion of a democratic vote. I mean, even the notion of a democratic vote is sort of with the, the, the PR that goes on before the election, all that sort of thing can be difficult, but they just subvert the notion. So you might vote one way, the, the machine will change your vote, and that happens. So it is very sad. And I think people just need to be aware that Yes, there is this big governmental machine, corporatist machine, globalized machine that can time us out. They have more money, they have more people, they have more energy and they have more time than we as activists do. But once you accept that, it can be quite liberating because you think, 
okay, if that's how it works and that's how it has worked in the past, let's think strategically about what we can make as a difference to win short, sharp things now. And it can work. It does work. So please don't, you know, give up hope about fighting for certain issues or, you know, don't let anyone give up hope for fighting for certain issues. They can still be won. I think that's great that you say that. And I want to go back to our discussion of fascism. It's the one thing I haven't wanted to talk about, I have to tell you, because it's scary. It's a scary thing to bring up the term fascism because it's a part of what's going on. It's just that it's imperceptible to people that are in their day-to-day bubble. And so when you start talking about it and referring to it, that's how you get pegged as a conspiracy theorist, as a strident activist. It's like it's a bad thing to be an activist. You know Anita Roddick? Do you remember her, the founder of The Body Shop? I do. Yeah, absolutely. She was an incredible woman. And, you know, you remind me of her. She was a big activist for peace, for justice, for the good treatment of animals and people around the world and cultures. And I'm surprised she wasn't on a UK list, <laughs> even though the Queen gave her a, what do you call it, when mm. the Queen gives you a title, like I think Sir Richard Branson you know, he's been knighted and she had a similar type of thing where like it's a blessing from the queen, but she was a big activist prior to her passing. She was, she was amazing. And I mean, there are still lots of people out there like that doing this sort of stuff, you know, but um, it is a difficult word to use fascism and particularly in Europe. I mean, I left the UK a few years ago because I got sick of what I could see as the slide away from basic freedoms. All these laws are in place now that could, if you get a bad prime minister, could just turn it overnight into a fascist state. There are all the laws in place. They're just not being applied to most of the people there. And I moved from the UK to Germany because I thought it would be safer because they've already been through their fascist you know, phase. They've, they know it. They've learned a lesson. They have got a rock-solid constitution now to protect them from that slide. And it's so sad that most people don't see what's going on. And particularly in the UK and the US, they seem to be sort of joined at the hip in some strange dance of death almost, you know, when it comes to this sort of taking away of historic freedoms, hard-won rights, and people are just giving them away because they're too complacent. When did the cameras start being put into Britain? Do you know? I seem to remember some of them were up before I went on the run after whistleblowing, so that must have been the mid-90s. And they became a really big thing, so by the time... I moved back to the UK in 2000. There were a lot around already on the London streets. And it's become a really big business ever since. So they reckon there is one camera for every 12 people in the UK now. And those are public cameras. Don't forget all the private CCTV cameras on parking lots and things like that. So there's a lot of them. They estimate that you cannot walk around London on your daily business getting from home to work without being photographed at least 500 times a day. Oh, my God. And they're also putting them in schools, not just, you know, on the corridors and things. They put them in the toilets. They put them in the changing rooms of schools. It's really creepy. Don't people talk about this in Britain? I mean, what's the buzz about it? Are people talking about it? People do, and some of the media does, but nothing changes. I mean, we had an election in 2010, and no government was elected, so we ended up with some coalition. And both of the parties involved in that coalition, both the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, made noises before um, the election that they would roll back the surveillance state, but they haven't at all. And this just goes to show it doesn't matter who you vote for. If you've got a 
first past the post two-horse race, the government always gets in and their backers call the shots afterwards. How do you find Germany? Describe it to us in your experience. <laughs> um, Germany is much more aware of its history, um, not just the Second World War fascist phase where the Gestapo could snatch people off the streets and disappear them, but also, of course, after the reunification after the end of the Cold War, where East Germany was reunified with West Germany. And the issues around that, the sort of truth commission sense that people were allowed to see what files were held on them, who was a spy, who was an agent, who was reporting on whom, was actually quite a healing process. So they have learned the lessons from those decades and they have written a cast-down constitution to protect the rights of their citizens. For example, they are just as susceptible to the... Um, hype around the war on terror. Terrorists at every corner, we've got to shred our civil liberties to protect the greater, you know, greater mass people. And every time the government tries to put through yet another law saying we can spy on our systems, it's the judges who say, no, you can't because of the Constitution. So they are standing up for the Constitution because of the lessons they learned, which is great. One hopes it will last. Yeah, <laughs> one hopes that it does last. Do you have any sense that the UN is helpful in the area of a universal declaration of peace and justice? Or do you feel that the UN has evolved into something different, even though it may be chartered for one thing? I think the concept of the UN is fantastic, but a lot of people go into it and build careers within it and forget about why they're there. But that can happen with many, many organizations. We all know that. But I, I think a lot of people get the sense that it's sort of relatively toothless as well. And there is an issue that there are certain key members of the Security Council, you know, the big, um, the big countries. And the U.S. tends to exercise its veto on key security issues much more than any other country. So that can cause problems and make it look powerless in the face of NATO actions or wars in the Middle East or whatever. So I think the concept is great. I would just love to see the people who work there re-remember their history and say, this is what we signed up to. This is why we were set up to stop future world wars. And it's so important to do that and remember and fight for what we believed in. In a global economy, which is being bankrupted country by country, currency by currency, culture by culture, do you really see people at the UN being willing to risk their jobs? One or two might, one or two might. They might blow the whistle, who knows? But then they will lose their job and that will be it. So they lose their influence from the inside. Um, I think it is an issue. And I think that actually the UN and even the US and the military might suddenly find themselves waking up one day and realizing it's not just about a disgruntled populace, but they, they are really, really, really pissed off and they are going to take to the streets. And it could get messy unless everybody sits down and has a real think about where are we going now. I mean, we're seeing this in Greece and in Europe at the moment because they are being so squeezed, not because the people were lazy, not because the hard workers were not hardworking, but because they were screwed financially from the top and by corrupt politicians. That's how they got taken into the EU originally. That's how they got taken into the Eurozone originally. That um, one of the banks, I think it was Goldman Sachs, signed off the books, even though they knew the books were dodgy. They cooked the books. 
and Greece was allowed into a zone that they should not have been allowed into. And because of that, it's the normal people on the streets of Greece who are suffering, not the politicians. Yeah. I want to talk to you about your work with LEAP, and I want you to explain what LEAP is and what you're up to with this organization. This is an interesting one because, obviously, with my intelligence background, my whistleblowing experience, my media experience, I've taken a, a very deep interest in a whole number of interrelated issues, be it the war on terror, post-9-11, uh, the fight on civil liberties, surveillance, things like uh, issues around WikiLeaks and internet freedoms and how you protect whistleblowers. And I was approached, I was on a tour around Canada talking about 9-11 and the war on terror back in 2009. And... Um, was approached by Leap, saying, well, you know, that was that was a good talk. Have you ever thought about this? Now, I'd never heard of Leap. Leap is Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And it is a rapidly growing organization across the planet of former and serving law enforcers, policemen, judges, lawyers, prison governors, intelligence officers, even some continental drug czars have joined up Leap now. And they are basically saying that the war on drugs has failed. The policy that's existed for 40 years, over 40 years, is a complete abject failure on so many fronts. Um, so I became involved and I went and had the, the great experience of going to a UN uh, drug convention in Vienna in March this year. And it was intensely frustrating going back to the sort of the whole issue of the UN. They are very powerless but very powerful at the same time. So they impose these conventions on the whole world, which they then say, you know, they have to exist and every country has to adhere to them, which are completely contradictory to the idea of health and safety, protection of the, you know, the whole populace across countries across the world. So you've got this terrible situation now where you have a war on drugs, which has caused more organized crime, which has caused militarization of the police, which has caused corruption in the police, which has caused huge damage health-wise and societally around the planet. And it's still being peddled as the best way of, of fighting you know, the issue of drugs. So people from LEAP are law professionals. They're using that professional experience to say, we know it's not working, we know it's not working for this, that, and the other reason. And that's why I joined up and I'm involved. And I'm trying to set up LEAP in Europe at the moment. In any particular area, first or second, or where would LEAP be? Well, I mean, LEAP, LEAP was set up 10 years ago, and it has grown exponentially since then. It has um, over 80,000 supporters worldwide. It has a presence in 119 countries. And we have speakers all across Europe. The trouble is it hasn't been terribly well-coordinated to date because we didn't have the presence here to date. But um, certainly across America, there are speakers everywhere. They get regular slots. They do media interviews. They are just saying, look, I'm a former undercover narcotics policeman and I had to deal with this and I know it's damaging my community. Or they're saying, I'm a lawyer. I could see how, well, how much harm is being done by these laws. I'm a judge. I could see why, you know, people should not be sent to prison for having what is essentially a health issue, which is an addiction issue. And then, of course, you look at certain countries, particularly in uh, Central and Latin America, which are the sort of narco states, um, where militarization means that, for example, in Mexico, 62,000 people have lost their lives in the last six years because of the drug wars. And these are not 62,000 people who are involved in um, pushing drugs. These are just collateral damage, as they say. And 20,000 20, people have been disappeared. I mean, people who might just have had their heads chopped off with a chainsaw and buried in an unmarked grave. 
and their families mourn them. It's disgusting. And the overlap between the drug war and the terror war, the war on terror, is marked because, for example, many, many states that are now um, blossoming with Islamic extremist terrorist groups are also the big drug-producing states in the world. I mean, Afghanistan is the most notable. So, for example, in the 1990s, it was a big producer of opium. When the Taliban took power, it reduced, and now it's been liberated by the West. Um, opium production has now doubled. The acreage has doubled since the war to liberate Afghanistan. So a lot of money flows between terrorists and organized crime and governments and organizations. In fact, uh, one interesting quote was from the chief UN drug guy, uh, Antonio Maria Costa, uh, in, in 2009. And he was looking at the credit crunch in 2008. And he said the only reason that international banks retained any form of liquidity after that credit crunch was because of the dirty money laundered, laundered through the drug trade. And that says it all, that even the banking sector is completely dependent, like an addict, on the international illegal drug trade. Wow, that's really big. Very big, and it's very nasty. Um, and the overlap between the stripping away of our civil liberties, um, both because of the war on terror post 9-11 and the war on drugs, is very, very, very noticeable, uh, particularly in the US when, you know, they've been smashing doors, sneaking and peeking in people's houses and all that sort of thing. That started under the war on drugs, not the war on terror. It's just accelerated since the war on terror. So they're very, very overlapped. What is the vision of LEAP? You know, when you have a vision, you know that you should go out and share things with the public, but what is the end game, if you will, or the delivery point? What is the manifestation that LEAP is looking to have? What are the goals? Well, our position is that the uh, war on drugs and prohibition has failed, and organized crime has grown exponentially since the war on drugs started. So why, if this trade is growing, why is it still... Why do we allow it still to be in the hands of the criminals? Why not say, you know, legalize, end the war on prohibition, legalize the drug trade. Yes, drugs are dangerous. We do not condone the use of drugs. But if it's legalized and controlled by governments, then it can be regulated and we can protect people more. And that's the situation that if prohibition ended, if we could regulate and tax the drug trade, there will still be some people who might have harm issues around it, a bit like people who smoke cigarettes or people who drink alcohol or whatever. Um, but most people won't suddenly start taking drugs if they're legalized. So the position of LEAP is very much, let's be adults about this and let's just end uh, a law that says that you can't do something to your own body. It's a victimless crime. And then let's tax and regulate it. You know, it's a paradigm shift in thinking, though, isn't it? Well, it is. And we've had so many decades now of this sort of screaming headlines about, um, you know, drug um, junkies, you know, out there committing crimes and all that sort of thing. All the statistics show that crime reduces. I mean, I'm, I'm in Europe. There are a number of European countries that have already decriminalized drugs. They haven't legalized them. They've decriminalized them, which takes away the prosecution and penalization of people who have a, a dependency on drugs. So they are treated as health um, issues and they are given treatment and they, they are helped and that's great and it also saves so much money from enforcement and judicial processing and imprisoning that the money that is spared can be put into um, harm reduction programs and it's worked very well in places like Portugal, in the Netherlands, in Switzerland, in Germany 
it's spreading across Europe. It's just the American system seems to be so draconian about it. And also the Americans have great sway within the UN and then they keep enforcing this law. But it's not just Europe. I mean, Latin America as well is also rethinking its approach to drug prohibition because they can see the damage and violence that's caused in their countries by the illegal drug trade. So the issue would be cut out the profit motive from organized crime. Just say, you know, this is bad. Why on earth? This is one of the biggest biggest business models in the planet is organized uh, is the drug trade. Take away the profit motive from the organized crime cartels, give it to government, let them tax it, let them then treat the people who develop problems. It's, yeah, it's a no-brainer, really. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. I just want to take a minute or two and share with you that we really appreciate you listening and sharing with your friends and loved ones and colleagues. And if you like the show, show it. Write something really cool, really nice on It's Rainmaking Time at iTunes. We have our own store there. And like our Facebook page. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter, feel free to do that. We send a bi-monthly newsletter out. And if you like it, share it with all your friends. Another thing we wanted to share with you is that somebody stepped in and started to do transcriptions for us. We have some transcriptions already done. If you would be interested, please drop us a line. We will be posting the transcriptions that are ready for sale. That's another way to assist the show. And for those of you who are in a position to donate $10 a month or $20 a month or more, please do so. Action speaks louder than words. We appreciate you. And thanks again for listening to It's Rainmaking Time. And back to the show. I was told by one of the people that I interviewed, who's a pilot for the CIA, that the drug trade, for example, in Afghanistan with the poppies and everything, actually pays for the black budgets. And that's why it's not ever going to go away, because the black budgets happen under the nose. They don't have to go through congressional oversight or get approval from the Congress So the drug trade is essential for black budget projects, and that includes technology, that includes the military, it includes all these different agencies of trillions of dollars of work. What do you think of that? I don't know the specifics of that, but um, certainly from my experience, I I do know that certain um, terrorist organizations get some of their fundraising through organized crime and drug trafficking. No doubt about that. I mean, we saw this in Northern Ireland during the Civil War. Uh, we see it in Afghanistan now. We see it in Colombia now with FARC. Um, and certain whole states in, in Africa have been turned into narco states for transporting drugs to Europe over the last five, six years. So well, there's no doubt about it. The, the black economy is huge. And it is not just black, it's also grey. So it gets washed through the banking sector. And the banking sector survives because of this. So there are a lot of vested interests in not seeing the end of the drug prohibition. Wasn't the Netherlands the model for not criminalizing drug users? Am I using the right word, not criminalizing? You made a distinction between two different areas, and I want you to repeat that. It was really, really good. What were the two pieces? There's a distinction between the word decriminalization and legalization. In Europe, we have a more progressive view towards the issue of um, illegal drugs that a number of countries have decriminalized the use of illegal drugs, which means that the people who use them are not treated as criminals. They are not prosecuted, convicted, and imprisoned if they develop a problem around ingesting drugs. Um, The problem is, of course, that 
even in the Netherlands, for example, where famously they have coffee shops where you can go in and you can buy a bit of weed and have a smoke, the supply of those coffee shops, the drug trade is still illegal, which means that the power and the finance still is in the hands of violent criminals, international drug cartels. So what LEAP is looking at, because of our experience as law enforcers, as prosecutors, as judges, as intelligence investigators, is the idea that if you decapitate the profit motive from the organized crime by legalization, then you protect society much more. Not just decriminalization, which means that you are helping the people who might develop drug dependencies or not penalizing them for smoking the weed. You get to a situation where the whole thing is legalized and the whole thing is then very much controlled, very much regulated, and protects society better. And once you take the profit motive out of the very violent drug cartel situation we have now, we also protect our societies much better because you get rid of street violence, gang violence, um, militarization in some countries. So it's a whole level, but there is a difference between the two. That's a really critical difference. What do you say and what does LEAP say to the people that are thinking if you decriminalize it and it becomes regulated and more available, that means more people can have access to it, that would equate to more people using it and then potentiating more drug-addicted people. Do you see how that outflow could manifest as well? I've seen the arguments in the press. I mean, all I would say is point to what happened in the U.S. with alcohol prohibition in the 1920s. Um, you know, as soon as you send it underground, it becomes sexy and cool, more people do it, and then you give all the money to violent, organized crime. Um, every study we've had in, the, in, the, in Europe, we have countries here who already have decriminalized, where people can take drugs without being penalized for doing so, has shown that actually drug use goes down, that violent crime um, goes down, that property crime goes down because people are not stealing to fund a habit, which is illegal. Um, and also even drug tourism goes down. So we have two, three notable countries. One is the Netherlands, very famous, because you're allowed to go there, go to a coffee shop, choose what you want to smoke, smoke it on the premises, and then go home. And the per capita usage amongst youngsters in the Netherlands is half the per capita usage in the, in the U.S., how would you get reliable stats for that, like what you just said? You know, it's half there than it is well, for the U.S.? Well, indeed. I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because you go to youngsters and say, well, you know, get <laughs> drugs, no. Um, but the point is, in the Netherlands, people don't care about saying that because it's okay to do it. So they're probably more honest than they are in the U.S. That's true. I can where see that. There will be penalization. So probably fewer say that they are not smoking a bit of pot or something. Um, and also we have seen from in Portugal is probably the most interesting example because in 2000, they decriminalized all drug use, not just cannabis, but everything. And there was a lot of debate about would this increase drug use, would this increase drug tourism, would this increase crime? And actually what they've seen across the board is everything has been reduced. And one of the reasons they see it is society has accepted that if someone gets a dependency on any form of drug, be it tobacco, alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, whatever, um, you get a situation where it seems a health issue rather than something a bit countercultural and cool. So particularly in, in the younger generation, there has been a massive increase in use of this sort of thing. It's a bit like education. You know, you can ban substances, people want to use it. You can re-educate people about substances, they don't want to use it. It's a bit like cigarettes, you know? Right, right. Over the last two decades, it, you know, it's been recategorized, it's a bit naff, it's smelly, it's bad for your health. 
education and it stopped people using the stuff. That's very true. I did a show on cannabis and hemp oil on a medicinal level. I'm not a smoker myself. I'm not really a drinker, although I love red wine from time to time. And I found myself so biased when I was doing the research for this. And when I started to look at it medicinally for people that have cured cancer with it, it opened up a whole area for me. I mean, this is a totally different subject because it's not just all the drugs, but the medicinal treatment value of cannabis and how serious it is and how potent it is and how people have been cured of it. And then I looked at the FDA and I looked at the pharmaceutical giants and how they've been trying to get patents on this and how long they've known it's curative. 35 years. <laughs> no, I mean, it's crazy. Um, we, have a, you know, we have a situation where the marijuana tax act, I think, came in in the 1930s in America, which is where a lot of this started, which banned not only the pleasurable use of marijuana, but also the use of or growing the plants, which were incredibly useful for, you know, rope and paper and um, energy and oils and everything. And this is a weed that could be used economically very well across the planet. And that's been banned because it's much more profitable for big companies and big farmers to use other things which they can patent. Um, and we're also seeing as well, there's a wonderful foundation in the UK, a scientific foundation called the Beckley Foundation. And I would urge everyone to look at the, the website. And they are researching what are currently illegal drugs, things like MDMA ecstasy or um, magic mushroom psychosylabin, um, and looking at the therapeutic uses they could be put to if they were legalized. So they're not saying we want rampant drug use, recreational drug use. They're saying these are chemicals that could actually potentially help people medically, and they, we can't use them yet because they're banned. And yet, most of these chemicals were, in fact, um, developed for therapeutic medicinal purposes. The trouble is they're not, um, they can't be patented yet because they're out of patents. They've been around for too long. So the pharmaceutical companies aren't particularly interested in them. Exactly. When I learned about how serious cannabis is for the treatment of cancer and how many people have been cured by making it into hemp oil, I interviewed Rick Simpson and... It's called Cannabis Medicine and Miracle Cure. And I had to deal with the same kind of bias in myself that said, oh, they just all want to get high, right? When I put my bias aside, I should say my mental conditioning, okay? The false mental conditioning. And I realized how many children, I'm telling you at death's door and people at death's door have been saved by this. Everything shifted. My whole view shifted about this. And I am sure that it's true with other things that you're talking about, that this whole war on drugs is a self-perpetuating loop of lost lives, lost economies, no help medicinally for people. And it's a way to militarize and to create more of a police state, basically, around the world. And it doesn't work. And I just wonder how Leap is going to go from these 80,000 people recognizing this whole thing is a disaster to at least starting with part of it. Maybe it starts in steps that marijuana becomes decriminalized around the world. And maybe it's the baby step. I agree. I mean, in fact, there are votes in three states in the U.S. in November, um, Oregon, Washington and Colorado about legalizing marijuana. And any listeners you have, please go out and vote for this. This is not just medical marijuana, which 
you know, in its own right is a great thing to vote for. This is just legalizing it full stop because it's about making something legal, protecting your communities and taking the control of those um, drug models out of the hands of organized criminals. That's what it's all about. You know, it's just like ending prohibition with alcohol in the 1930s. No difference whatsoever. So anyone in those states, please go and vote pro-legalization. Because all the studies we've seen in Europe, where we have countries where people can go and smoke perfectly legally in a coffee shop or whatever, have shown that it leads to a decreased interest in that. It seems a bit naff, it's not cool. But for people who need that for medicinal reasons, that's very important. What is the next step for you in terms of what you'd like to see done in the world? This is one step. This is one key point, which is to eliminate prohibition and to stop the war on drugs, literally to cease it and to decriminalize it, which takes the control out of the real criminals, right? The cabal, the drug lords, and changes the whole playing field, correct? Absolutely. And I think actually with the current financial problems globally that we have, states are no longer going to have the option of not doing this. They will need to regulate and then tax drug trade. It's the only way they, you know, they're going to be able to, if you stop enforcing the drug war, you save huge amounts of money with the enforcement side of things, the intelligence side of things, the military side of things, as well as raising tax, as well as taking away so much harm to so many people in the communities. Financially, it's a no-brainer. But no, I mean, personally, that and issues around the erosion of our civil liberties around the war on terror, um, fighting for internet freedom, which is what I always call the war on the internet. So I've got my three wars I'm trying to fight at the moment. <laughs> it's uh, quite a lot to take on. <laughs> I want to recommend that new product developed by Phil Zimmerman and some Navy SEALs for those of you who actually would like to have secure communication, to go to silencecircle.com and look at what they've produced. Phil Zimmerman was the person who developed PGP, pretty good privacy encryption technology, so serious that NSA was going to put him in jail for life. He fought this and won, and he has been a real pioneer in the area of securing communication for people around the world that need to have secure communication. Go to silentcircle.com to look at what they've produced. I just found out about it this morning. And I think it's very important for just being able to navigate and to share with people how you feel, how you think in a peaceful way, like sending an envelope in the mail, closing that envelope. Some people say, Annie, that we're living in an age where there is no such thing as secure communication with smart dust and the miniaturization of technology and nanotechnology and things that are put in the air. And I think that when it comes to electronic communication, it may be that the silencecircle.com could be very interesting. What do you think? I think these are issues that people need to be aware of. Um, I agree with the analogy used, which is sending a letter. Um, most people just think if they use Google Mail or Yahoo or whatever, then it's private, and it's not. It will be data mined by our governments. Whether you've got anything to hide or not, you have no privacy. And it's not about doing something wrong. It's just about why the hell can't you have privacy? It's a bit like sending a letter sealed as opposed to a postcard that anyone can read. 
And that's exactly what we need to, to enforce because we can't rely on our governments and our corporations to do that now. So the other thing um, I would recommend is a movement that's taking off around the world at the moment called um, Crypto Party. And this is a bunch of hacktivists, not evil hackers, hacktivists who are politically motivated to do good. Um, they've set up this thing called Crypto Party and they are spreading globally. And you can just go along to your local hacker space and learn the basics of how to protect yourself to ensure you have privacy. Just because it's your privacy, it's your life. You know what's interesting too? The fact that we have to go through this just to have privacy. Not even secrecy, just to be able to have a private conversation. And one of the things that really ticked me off is that the founder of Facebook went on the record, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not saying exactly as he said it, but in essence, he was saying, if you need to have privacy, you need to have secrecy, everything should be open, everything should be transparent. I have a major issue with this. I have a major issue with the fact that they data mine everything you write on Facebook, the fact that they change the terms of service every other day, practically. And I'm stunned at how a number of people have no clue that they are being data mined and data collected and put into profiles every day they're on Facebook, every day. Uh, Well, I have to say, don't use Facebook. I mean, if you have to, and I do have a profile, but just so people can find me, don't use it to put your personal life out there. But I find it incredibly ironic that governments get so angry about people who expose what they're getting up to, like WikiLeaks or whatever, whistleblowers. And all I would say is let's turn that phrase back on them. Governments, if you have nothing, if you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to hide. What's wrong with a bit of transparency? They hate it. So why on earth would they expect us to open ourselves up 100% so they can watch everything we do when they don't want to do it back. And they're supposed to be our servants. They are public servants paid for by us. That's a very good point. Some people have said to me who use Google and use Gmail, which is all on the cloud now, what is the issue about everything going on the cloud? And the thing is that I don't feel most of the cloud companies deserve to sit with my business letters, my materials, what I'm doing next, where I'm going. It's none of their business. They should not have the hard drive of my life. That's the issue I have with the cloud. Well, the other issue, of course, is look what happened to um, Kim.com in New Zealand. He's the guy who ran Mega Upload. Do you remember this case? No, talk about it. What's his name? Kim.com. He changed his name. He's a German who moved to New Zealand. He ran something called Mega Upload which became one of these Dropbox-type services where people could put their stuff on a cloud and some people then used it as a way of sharing links to um, films and things in breaking the copyright. The point is, the company didn't necessarily know that because they were offering a service where you could park stuff. And in January, he, in New Zealand, was spied on. He was arrested in this big SWAT team-type raid um, his family was terrified, his pregnant wife was terrified, he was arrested, imprisoned, and now it's all emerged over the last few months that he was spied on illegally in New Zealand by the US for copyright infringement, and he's now suing the pants off the US and various other organizations in New Zealand. But the point is that his website, Mega Upload, might have had some links to copyright material that it shouldn't have had, but he would not know, like Google would not know, or YouTube would not know. 
but he got persecuted for it. Um, but actually, crucially, a lot of businesses parked their information on the mega upload cloud, and that all got taken down too. So many people, millions of people around the planet lost their business stuff, their private stuff, because the FBI decided to go for, for this company illegally under um, New Zealand law. So it's a sort of projection of American power using copyright laws is a real problem and is really resented across the planet. It's very instructive. I just got a new computer, and I cannot tell you how many times I'm asked to pump things to the cloud. It is ridiculous. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like you're assaulted constantly to get your information and what you're doing on their cloud. I'm not saying the cloud can't be used for different type of things if you're storing media files that people are hearing or downloading or listening to and other things like that. But for your business communication and what you're doing and your strategic plans and what's dear to your heart, my big concern is that all the computer companies are going to get rid of hard drives. That's my concern. What do you think of that? Well, I think the other major concern is that um, under current U.S. law, they are claiming hegemony over any U.S. standard domain name, be it .com, .org, .net, .info. So even if you live anywhere else in the world but use a .com or a .info or something like that, if the U.S. decides you might be a threat to them in some way, uh, business-wise, copyright-wise, distant-wise, activist-wise, whatever, they can close down your website. They can eradicate your info. Even if you're an American, they can do this now too, without any pre-warning and without any compensation. I'm confused. Do you mean where you purchase the domain or if you're just an American Is citizen? Anyone, if you, no, anyone who buys, because the standard used to be that you set up a website, you'd be .com, .org, .info, .net, or whatever, yeah? Yes. And people have used this around the planet. And now America is saying to the planet, these are our domain names. And if we don't like you, we'll shut you down. And this has happened to foreign organizations, foreign country, uh, companies now. I mean, not you know, they would say oh, it's because of terrorism or drugs, but it's not. They don't like dissidents, and that's what they're shutting down. And this is precisely why, for example, my website is now .ch, which is Switzerland because I do not want to be registered. I don't want anything going through a U.S. domain name because they could just take it down and have no warning. Switzerland is no longer a place where you can park your funds privately because they now have trade relations with the U.S. and the U.S. can go into any and request any of those bank accounts to be made available. Are you aware of that? I am, yeah. And I know that um, there's a lot of resentment in Switzerland. They feel like they're being bullied by the U.S. again. Um, the only reason I chose Switzerland for now is the fact that it was the only country out of all the domain names registered by WikiLeaks that did not sh shut down WikiLeaks when the whole scandal broke in 2010. They said we have a basic right of freedom of speech. Did WikiLeaks have a Iceland domain name? I'm not sure. I know they had a number of domain names, all of which got switched down. And of course, then all the major financial companies refused to take donations to WikiLeaks, so they've been starved of funds, I mean, illegally. Um, but um, I suppose the reason I went to Switzerland was just because they had that particular reputation at that time. We shall see. Wow, very it's something I think people need to think about, that just because you set up a website or you have a company with a website and it happens to be .com or .org or whatever, doesn't mean you own that information. And the more you put out in the cloud, the more it can be taken down if people want to. There are certain things you need to protect 
And the more we live online, the more we need to think about protecting them. And that's why I would recommend just Googling crypto party and perhaps getting involved in that as basic protection. What do you think of StartPage and what they're doing in Europe in terms of a search engine instead of Google? Oh, I've been using StartPage for years. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they've I was had. They've meeting uh, Dr. Catherine Albrecht a few yes, years ago, and she they, immediately. Un- they've undergone a lot of tension and conflict to keep it alive, mm. right? I mean, they've gone through a lot. Yep. I think yeah. they're one of the last great bastions of privacy in any search. They are, and I think their mission is wonderful. But you can't assume that that you know is that you can't use that as just your any form of privacy or protection, right? What else do you use to do searches? What do you suggest? Not just StartPage, but other places to search. Because all of them, Bing, Yahoo, Google, I mean, they're all tracking systems. Of course they are. And, you know, as fast as a new good one comes up, then it'll be compromised. But I would suggest that the best systems to use, get off Microsoft, get off Apple, use Linux of some flavor, be it Ubuntu or whatever. Um, and then if you're going to use any form of search engine, make it a, an open source search engine, not a proprietary. The problem with proprietary search engines or systems is that the government can put back doors into those company systems. And that's the problem. If you don't want to be looked at, don't be in one of those systems. If you're on open source, it sounds contradictory. But the point is the geeks will be looking for bugs being placed in those systems and will alert people and patch them up if there's any problem. So Linux is very good. Um, Chromium's very good. PGP, of course, um, to encrypt your emails. It's just, it's not about having anything to hide. It's just about, you know, if I want to go to the, to the loo, I want to shut the door. You know, if I want to write an email, I want to shut the door. I just don't want people necessarily having automatic access to what I want to write or think. Yeah, we have to be very vigilant. And maybe 98% of the public will not be vigilant and will not care because their answer is, I have nothing to hide. I don't care if anybody reads what I have. It doesn't matter to me. What do you say to that? That's probably right. But I think as the world gets more difficult, more challenging, um, the economic situation is not going to get better for a long time. There will probably be more riots and everything. I mean, like I said, I think it's a bit of a race between the government seizing more powers or the corporations seizing more powers and shutting us down and um, us claiming our powers and claiming our freedoms and claiming our privacy. So... The faster we can get the word out about what's going on, the more chance we have as the 99%. Did you have a chance to meet Julian Assange? Um, yes, I was, I've met him a couple of times um, at various conferences. And, of course, I've spoken out in support of WikiLeaks as a whistleblower. Yes. Because I've had to deal with the old media. You know, I understand what he's trying to achieve. I think it's, um, it's remarkable, his vision. What do you think is going to happen to him, Annie? Oh, such a difficult one. I mean, I hope that um, he will remain alive to start with, remain safe. Uh, he comes out of the old, the old whistleblowing hacker group from the early 1990s. So, you know, he has a lot of credibility from, you know, for the last two decades. It's a difficult one because the U.S. has been so draconian against him. Like I said earlier on in this interview, if you are bona fide, if you really are creating pain to the organized, you know, to the authorities, they will come after you hard. And the more pain you create, the you know, the harder they will come after you. And that's how to assess a whistleblower or a whistleblowing organization. And I've never seen them come after anyone as hard as they've gone after Julian Assange. Well, nobody's hit quite as hard as he has. Talk about dissidents. 
that film that was shown blew me away. It was so horrible and so sad and so frightening. The dissidents that you could be shooting from a computer in the air and killing innocent people and laughing about it and acting like it's a video game. That's very instructive for us to realize that that was minimized and trivialized as an act. Yes, I find it absolutely shocking. You know, these are people, children being maimed and murdered. And not only that, but also that there were two Reuters journalists who were killed that day. And because they were journalists, there was more pressure to find out what happened to them. Their families pushed. And the key thing was the Pentagon lied for years. They covered up. And it's only after WikiLeaks released Collateral Murder, the video, that the families finally heard that, yes, actually the Pentagon, Pentagon had been covering up. So if WikiLeaks had not done what they'd done, there would have been no awareness of that evil attack. And, you know, WikiLeaks is just a publisher. It's putting out stuff. They receive information. They, they disseminate it. How's the difference? What's the difference between that and newspapers? I think because they're publishing some of what is considered classified, you know, like remember the classified material of Hillary Clinton's surveilling email messages? I don't remember if I'm saying it right, but whatever it is that was released in that capacity that was very embarrassing to her and the fact she was having all these dignitaries surveilled, it sheds light on something very unsavory, very disturbing, and very embarrassing to the people in power. So I think that that was an incendiary thing it appears that that was worse, and I believe why the U.S. is after him than just the collateral murder video. Do you know what I'm saying? No, no, of course. They're after him because he, he created so much embarrassment to them. But what Hillary Clinton was advocating and spying on her U.N. colleagues was illegal. Uh, we're talking about war crimes. We're talking about manipulation of other people's countries and democracies. That is what Julian Assange and WikiLeaks has actually revealed. Now, of course, people hate that within the organizations um, in the U.S. And that's why, precisely, they have a secret grand jury convened trying to find any reason, whatever reason, to prosecute him under the Espionage Act. And that's also why they've tortured Bradley Manning, Private Bradley Manning, who is allegedly one of his sources, who submitted something to WikiLeaks years ago. They've tortured him for years. And so the whole thing stinks. But it's all about covering up the embarrassment. It's all about not allowing people to know what the government's really doing. And I think the parallel is very clear that the New York Times and the Guardian newspaper in the UK published exactly the same stuff. And they are not being prosecuted in the same way that Julian Assange is. They publish the same stuff. They are publishers. So is WikiLeaks. What is the difference? The difference is that WikiLeaks set up an apparatus that functions at a higher, speedier level than any newspaper in the world can do. And through technology, the way that he set it up is it's unstoppable, pretty much. Well, it's a new model, absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why some of the old media have turned against him, because they can see the threat to their business model. Do you think he'll ever get out of London? Um, we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, the, the, the case with Sweden is bogus, but you know nobody's going to back down in the near future. But... And the facts are out there already. I can't see that there's a case. It's just been hyped up and hopped up by the whole media thing because it's politically dictated that that's what they should do. 
you had said something in actually a couple of your interviews at some point. I watched the one that you did in Canada. And one of the things you said is do your own research to people. Don't believe everything you hear. Go on your path and do your own fact checking and get involved. And I really like that, that you didn't even ask people to believe what you're saying, that you told them to go do their own research. I think that's very noble. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? I don't know if it's noble. I just, I just think that's the obvious thing to suggest. I mean, we've, we're all sending human beings, you know. We have access to a multiplicity of information that none of our ancestors ever had access to. So how, would it, how could we ever suppose that anyone else could dictate to us? I mean, we, you know, we have this information. Let's go and make up our own mind. But also read from many multiple sources, not just take one line because the one line might be peddled by certain organizations or interests. That's all I'm saying, really. Do your own research. <laughs> You're very brave, Annie it's Michonne. So important. You're very brave. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's true. Where are you speaking next? Where can people listen to you speak? I am doing a talk at Oxford University next week. That's my next speaking engagement. International relations. I'm not sure if it's going to be online. We shall see. And I've done a couple of interviews over the last couple of days, one for the BBC and one for Russia today. So they should be online too. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Annie Michon, former intelligence officer for MI5, the UK security service who resigned in 1996 to blow the whistle on the spies' incompetence and crimes. You can find out more about her work and her speaking engagements and background at anniemachon.ca, A-N-N-I-E, Michon, M-A-C-H-O-N dot C-H. And I really want to thank you so much for making yourself available. God bless you, Annie. Well, thank you very much, Kim. It's been a pleasure.